invite Dr. Thomas Pallone here, who's a professor in nephrology here in Maryland. Um, he has, uh, his reputation has excelled among the nephrology fellows who say his acid base uh, uh, talks and um, his fundamental uh, understanding and ability to explain the physiology of uh, renal functioning um, and the complexities of acid base have, are really unparalleled. So I felt compelled and honored to have him here um, to talk to you all about it. So thank you. Well, thank you. That's more than I deserve. Uh, hello, fellow, our newly minted senior fellows in the back room. Um, the, in, honestly, it was a little intimidating to think about talking about acid base to critical care people uh, for the simple reason that uh, I know you probably deal with it day to day more than we do. Um, you do have a little bit of a different way of looking at things, which isn't you know wrong. It's the same thing. The jargon's different. Um, it, and uh, I was a little worried about bringing the coals to Newcastle, so to speak. So what I'm going to emphasize as uh, uh, in this is a part of re I'm, I'm really basic renal physiology talk, more or less. But I wanted to. Is this mic okay? Is this good? Um, I, what I wanted to do was uh, um, focus on an aspect that tends to get glossed over and really not, uh, you know, probably understood thoroughly by, uh, as part of, uh, of clinical training. So uh, largely we're going to talk about handling of protons with an emphasis on, as you see my last slide, um, you can see I have no life. I love ammonia. Um, and, and just talk about renal handling of protons and, and how the whole thing gets uh, managed to maintain homeostasis. Uh, first, you know, just the basic numbers, just get everybody in the same room uh, if you've never thought about all of this. Uh, of course, the major contribution of acid, well, we're little soda pop bottles, I guess, where, you know, you pump CO2 into solution. Uh, but, of course, we have a way of excreting it through the lungs in copious quantities. We are greenhouse gas producers. Um, but the real, you know, thing that, that pulls us together and helps us to, or, or makes nephrologists, you know, stand up and take notice more, more than the respiratory aspects, are the fact that we do add strong acids to the extracellular fluid every day as part of our catabolism of, um, of, of food stuff, you know, metabolic end products. And the number that's typically thrown out is about a milli, milli equivalent per kilo per day of, uh, of strong acids that we have to deal with. And obviously this number can vary quite a bit depending upon what you eat and what the circumstances are and, um, and how much acid you're producing from other sources like ketones and lactate and all that. But you know that. Um, so in terms of the handling of a proton. Um, you already know this. Uh, this is medical student stuff. Uh, basically what happens is a proton gets contributed to plasma. Um, the easy way to think about it is that it consumes a buffer, which by and large is bicarbonate. Um, and then this bicarbonate has to, of course, be regenerated once, uh, once it's uh, consumed. Um, another important aspect of all this is that you have a huge filtered load of bicarbonate at the glomerulus, and obviously that cannot be allowed to escape into the urine if you want to maintain homeostasis, and uh, this has to be reclaimed, which is the pro proximal acidification process. Um, and then the kidneys have to excrete our daily acid load, as intimated in the last slide. Uh, the distal nephron buffers are an extremely important part of all of this and really are the thing that enables 
um, uh, the regeneration of bicarbonate, as we'll discuss. The other thing that's very you know, interesting, especially with respect to the ammonia, ammonium ion um, buffer pair, is uh, the way in which it's handled by the kidney is completely bizarre. Um, and how ammonia is used to suck up protons involves diffusion trapping through what is now lovingly known as the RH protein gas channels uh, that are uh, well expressed both on red blood cells and also uh, in the distal nephron. And so finally, you know, of course, uh, you consume that bicarbonate and new bicarb regenerates in order to maintain balance and homeostasis. The um, sort of drawn out reaction of this that I always wave in front of, uh, you know, fellows and medical students and uh, alike is that you have an acid, a strong acid presumably here, uh, in which the anion is chloride, no anion gap, or of course uh, another anion uh, that, uh, that will give you an anion gap, um, consumed by sodium by reaction with bicarbonate. And you can really kind of follow the carbon atom if you want to see how all of the, what, what's really going on here. Um, when H reacts with bicarbonate, you form carbonic acid, and carbonic acid um, courtesy of carbonic anhydrase, is equilibrated with, um, with uh, water and CO2. So lose a bicarb. Um, this CO2, you can think about it two ways, I think, conveniently. One is that you can excrete it via the lungs, uh, or you can think of it as just finding its way down to the distal nephron, where the reverse reaction is driven by acidification processes to, rega to, uh, to regain bicarbonate. And um, this is a slide that's in all, more or less in all the textbooks and tells the tale of, uh, of what goes on in the plasma. Of course, bicarbonate isn't the only player here. But if uh, this is a, you know, a beaker full of plasma or a beaker full of water, you add a few protons to it. Um, it takes almost nothing in the way of protons to uh, make the pH of, uh, of water go to nothing. Um, whereas, uh, you know, plasma really is quite a good buffer. So that when you introduce a proton load into plasma, it doesn't produce devastating swings in pH, courtesy of our buffer pairs that are present in that location. Now, a big part, I, I, mean, I think one thing that's probably glossed over too much in the process of teaching the physiology of all this is that the red blood cells are really an important part of what's going on here in a couple of ways. Um, Red blood cells, carbonic anhydrase is something that's present in obviously many locations, but very importantly, it's also contained within the plasma of red blood cells, within the intracellular space of red blood cells. Um, it's responsible, this reaction, CO2, the hydration and dehydration of carbonic acid, is, um, is would be a slow equilibrium reaction were it not for the presence of carbonic anhydrase. So in physiological systems, we always think, and our assumption is when we solve acid-base problems, that this whole process is completely in equilibrium. The, um, the bicarbonate to uh, proton um, um, uh, carbonic acid um, is, is a very fast reaction, whereas this is slow. This reaction um, proceeds with a pKa of 6.1, as everybody in the room knows who's ever seen Henderson-Hasselbalch equation. 
And, uh, but the important thing here, a couple of things are important with respect to red blood cell. One is that carbonic anhydrase, which of course is in the proximal and distal nephron of the kidney in order to, uh, to maintain this equilibrium, is also loaded, located inside red blood cells. And hence, if you think of a red blood cell as being within a really short diffusion distance of anything and everything in the extracellular space, what it means is that you've got carbonic anhydrase basically everywhere and is the reason that this whole thing is always in equilibrium. So short diffusion distances guarantee access to carbonic anhydrase. And then, importantly, um, the red blood cell expresses an anion exchanger that allows bicarbonate to flux across its uh, uh, membrane and maintain that equilibrium. Here's a, you know, a sort of a cartoon drawing of a red blood cell showing um, CO2 diffusing in and at the hands of carbonic anhydrase maintaining um, you know, equilibrium and then the ability of bicarbonate and protons to equilibrate here is uh, you know, largely handled by the ability to move bicarb across. Uh, this is band three uh, written in some textbooks. Uh, um, uh, and uh, uh, the, it is the anion exchanger that provides access to, uh, to, to move bicarbonate across this uh, barrier. So red blood cells are there. They're important. And uh, without them, we'd be in trouble. I love ammonia as I mentioned. Um, this is a very interesting molecule. Um, the, you know, this is basically its structure we all suffered through organic chemistry. Um, the important thing about it, of course, is that it's got this bare set of, um, of uh, electrons that are nucleophiles. Um, its properties are uh, that it boils at negative 33 degrees centigrade. You can solidify it when you get much below, you know, negative 80 degrees centigrade. And um, it's actually, you can prepare this stuff in the lab. I had to do that once. Uh, it was a scary experience. The, um, uh, you can actually distill this stuff into dry ice and get a bottle full of liquid ammonia uh, and then keep it in a negative 80 degree freezer, but you better hope that negative 80 degree freezer doesn't go down overnight. Um, never mind. That was a, when I had black hair. Um, that's why it's white. The, uh, the, uh, the other thing that's really interesting about this stuff is incredible solubility. Uh, it, you know, loves to yank protons off of water. That's this reaction down here. And, um, and you can dissolve 899 grams of this stuff in a liter, which, uh, you know, is just astounding. I mean, you can, you know, the percent uh, um, of ammonia in ammonium hydroxide solutions can be just enormous. If you've ever, you know, just whiffed a little low concentration of this stuff from solution into your nasal mucosa, you know how reactive it is. So the fact that it's so reactive and has this particular these characteristics uh, confers its pKa, which is 9.2. Now that this is so important is almost not intuitive uh, in a physiological system, simply because. Physiological pHs, whether you're considering extracellular fluid or whether you're considering the lumen of the collecting duct, uh, are way, way, way far away from 9.2. So you think this would be a pretty lousy buffer. Um, but the fact is, the fact is, it is a lousy buffer. Basically, what it does is it, uh, it's good at soaking up protons, um, which, if you have a way of getting rid of them, um, provide you with a good sink, and that's basically what it's, what it's uh, capable of doing. But 9.2 is the pKa. So basically, all that means, to put it in a couple of words, is that uh, ammonia 
exists 99% plus as ammonium ion in a physiological solution no matter where you're talking about it. Um, its generation in the proximal tubule is highly regulated. Uh, it has very, as we're going to discuss in many, many slides, convoluted transport routes through the kidney, which I'll discuss with you. Um, it substitutes for potassium ion on many transporters throughout the kidney. And um, the really interesting part of renal physiology, uh, again, I have no life, is that it, you can have enormous lateral gradients across uh, renal epithelia. Um, and the kidney is capable of handling that um, through various mechanisms. It's harnessed the ability to use this stuff. Um, so I'm going to show you a little bit of micropuncture data. Uh, no, you know, who, who micropunctures anymore? But some of the most very interesting um, numbers come from micropuncture of, 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 old, of old days. Uh, the reason I'm showing this slide is just to remind you that uh, the human kidney and, and really rat kidney have two, two populations of nephrons. Ones that uh, have are where the glomeruli are near the corticomedullary junction and the loops of Henle dive way, way down into the medulla and the others where the glomeruli and corresponding proximal and distal tubules are on the surface uh, and that's really the majority, the, the largest number of nephrons. So if you want to sample tubular fluid, you're basically sticking pipettes in, the, in proximal convoluted tubule or distal convoluted tubule of superficial nephrons and uh, obviously you're doing this in rat or maybe rabbit or maybe mouse these days. Uh, you can collect urine or stick catheters, the, uh, the ducts of Bellini here are wide enough to actually stick catheters into uh, and sample collecting duct fluid or you can micropuncture terminal collecting ducts. You can even micropuncture vasa recta and, um, and uh, uh, loops of Henle down here in the deep nephron. So, so basically these are the kinds of experiments that are done and we can measure many interesting things um, uh, if you've got the patience and the technology to do it. So here's a really, really classical paper. Gottschalk et al., 1960, in which they did exactly that kind of an experiment. They did one other really tour de force thing, which is after they punctured the nephron, they filled it up with a plasticizer, and then they dug that thing back out to figure out how far down the distal tubule or how far down um, uh, the proximal tubule the micropuncture site had actually been. Hence, they give you information here of percent distance from glomerulus along proximal tubule or percent distance along the distal tubule and um, in urine over here. So what they're showing here is change in pH from normal, which was 7.4. So a pH of 0 0.4 means a pH of, or a pH change of 0 0.4 in the negative direction means a pH of 7. And down here at a pH of 5, which is the sort of thing you can you can achieve in, uh, in collecting duct luminal fluid and, and in urine. And it, this is just incredibly illuminating if you look at it. Um, so what you're showing is a pH comes in at 7.4, and by the time you move down the proximal tubule, um, the pH reaches 7. You really can't puncture loops of Henle down here too easily. Um, you can't really get to the loops of Henle of, of superficial nephrons at all by any method yet known um, to, to sample fluid, but you can certainly get the proximal and distal convoluted tubules and then you can collect urine. And what it shows is that the pH really maintains at around seven all the way through the cortex into the distal convoluted tubule. And then there's a 
an enormous drop as you move into the collecting duct. And so this is the data that really identifies collecting duct as the site of acidification. Mind you, the loop of Henle, which is between here and here, this thing here, the loop of Henle, which is between here and here, you know, you just really can't sample for a superficial nephron. But obviously what's going on here is you're reclaiming bicarbonate. And you're taking that pH of 7.4 and moving it to a pH of 7.0 as you reclaim quantitatively all the bicarbonate in the proximal convoluted tubule. Uh, you know that uh, bicarb concentrations, about 25 in the plasma, 180 liters a day of glomerular filtrate, not any patients that we deal with, obviously, but normal, normal renal function. Um, and this amounts to, you know, dumping some 4,500 milliequivalents a day of bicarbonate into uh, Bowman space. And this stuff gets recovered in the proximal tubule. The way that's done, again, you know, this is just your, your basic physiology cartoon, is that it is done by proximal acidification, what you do, what's typically done by the kidney in the proximal tubule is you capture flux of sodium from extracellular space into cells, which is a favorable gradient, um, and then you export protons uh, against a very unfavorable gradient from inside the cell to, uh, to, to the lumen. And uh, this antiport system, sodium-hydrogen exchange, this continuously acidifies the lumen. This what this does in the presence of carbonic anhydrase and the brush border here, of course, is maintain an equilibrium where CO2 is being generated by this acidification, which then can find its way across into the blood. And this is, is basically, you know, taking an equilibrium system and moving the products of the reaction into the blood side. And, um, and by driving this continuously, you reclaim 4,500 milliequivalents a day of bicarb. If you stick um, an electrode and measure PCO2 in the cortex of the kidney, uh, it's very high. It's somewhere, it's not 40, it's more like 60. And, um, and uh, this, um, this process uh, has gotten serious attention from people who like to mathematically model chemical engineering processes. But the end result of this is what you classically know, you see this in all the textbooks, that um, that bicarbonate concentration by the end of the proximal tubule, here's the glomerulus, 7.4, 7.0, by the end um, uh, drops to very low levels by the end of the proximal tubule, courtesy of this acidification. But obviously all we've done is broken even, and we still haven't uh, you know, gotten rid of those protons that we're generating by, uh, by metabolic processes. And so this you know, is a recapitulation of a prior slide. You're consuming um, bicarbonate by, uh, in, in order to deal with this strong acid. And now you need to replace the bicarbonate. And where is that done? Um, choice one, proximal. Choice two, distal. Uh, choice three, collecting duct. And, um, you know, the knee-jerk thing that you're taught in, uh, in medical school, which is really not wrong, is that this is a distal process that occurs in the collecting duct. And uh, the fact of the matter is um, I would accept the answer of one, three or the combination of the two as being most important. So acidification and generation of new bicarbonate uh, actually occurs in the proximal tubule, depending upon how you look at it. It's kind of a semantic question. So in the distal nephron, um, going there first in the collecting duct, here you're in the intercalated cell, you've got a pH in here of 7.2 in the collecting duct intercalated cell. 
Out here in the lumen, if you can pump the protons well enough, you get a pH of 4.5. That's a three order of magnitude gradient of concentration. And so you harness, in order to get the protons transported out here, uh, you have to consume energy courtesy of proton ATPases or, or potassium hydrogen exchangers or, or some combination of, of energetic uh, consuming processes. Once you have the proton out here, if you don't want the pH to go to zero before you've actually eliminated very many protons, you've got to buffer it. And of course, uh, that's where um, you know, ammonium ion and uh, ammonia, this buffer pair, and, and titrable acids to the extent that they're available come in place. Again, now what's going on here is you're taking an equilibrium reaction, lots of carbonic anhydrase in this cell, and CO2 is basically being driven to protons and bicarbonate. And the bicarbonate, through anion exchange mechanisms, um, can be recovered into the blood. And this, this thing is just driven continuously by the ability to excrete the protons and, and, and remove the products of this reaction. And so basically, that's pretty much how the system works at this location. And uh, the other thing for boards and for uh, you know, any testmanship or roundsmanship is that if you really want to know how well a human being or a mammal can acidify the urine, you don't really look at the pH. The pH is really, uh, um, although it's, I, I, I won't argue that if you can't get your pH down that you've probably got an acidification problem. The reality is the amount, the, 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 the your ability to excrete large proton loads is really tied to how much ammonium ion you can put into the urine because that's the buffer trap um, that, that, is capable of, of, uh, uh, that is capable of helping us to rev up our excretion of proton loads. Now back to this issue of the pKa being 9.2 for this. So how, you know, how, does, how does this work? Um, you have to do some messy algebra with logarithms and all that stuff you know, that you did at the end of high school. Um, but if you take products and ratios you know, of products to reactants and all that and do a little bit of logarithmic moving around, you can basically take the uh, equilibrium equation and, and re fairly readily derive this. What it's showing is that the ratio, this is an e assuming that this reaction up here is in equilibrium, the ratio of ammonia to the sum of ammonia and ammonium is equal to this thing. If you take a moment and look at this, the key here is, is that down in the denominator, you've got 10 to the 9.2 minus pH. pH is 7-ish, maybe 5-ish if you're out in the collecting duct lumen. And so you're talking about um, this little component in the denominator being 100 to 10,000 or more. Hence, one doesn't matter over here. And the, that just simply points out that this ratio is going to give you, uh, you know, a, a, uh, something very small, which tells you that ammonia is going to be next to nothing compared to the concentration of ammonium ion in any given setting. Um, bottom line is that you can toss out the one. In this ratio, you can forget this, and you end up with something that looks like this, which if you flip it over, just simply says that the ratio of ammonium ion to ammonia is pretty well estimated as 10 to the pKa minus the pH. 
which is going to be depending upon where you are in physiological solutions, in plasma, or, or in collecting duct lumen. This ratio is going to be 100 to 10,000. So the other way to do this is to graph it and take a look at what you're really dealing with. Here's the ratio. You can forget the ammonia in the denominator, as I mentioned before. This is the ratio of ammonia to ammonium ion, really. And um, if you look at it as a function of pH, um, where you know, of physiological relevance, which is 4.5 out here to maybe 7.4, you're really dealing with just this little thing right here. If you take it and you blow that up, okay, let's take this guy here and expand the abscissa and the ordinate just for this area, and you get this particular relationship, which you can see is really very exponential. And what this means is that changes in pH produce huge swings in this ratio, even though this ratio is small. Okay, look, to be clearer, let's do it in tabular form. At a pH of 5, let's start with a pH of 7. At a pH of 7, the ratio of ammonium ion to ammonia is around 150 at equilibrium. If you go to a pH of 6, up an order of magnitude. If you go up, go to a pH of 5, which you can readily accomplish in the collecting duct, you're up two orders of magnitude. And so the ability of ammonia, it's always very good at sucking up protons, but it improves by two orders of magnitude in the collecting duct as you acidify. So it's an excellent trapper of, um, of, uh, of protons. So, whoop, sorry. So now, back to the proximal convoluted tubule. I mentioned earlier that you can argue that the proximal tubule actually produces new bicarbonate. And let me, let, let me point this out. So over here, um, here we're talking about the reaction where ammonia is being removed from glutamine to make, uh, to you know, rev up your capability to trap protons in the distal nephron. As we already mentioned, you know, the pKa of this stuff is 9.2. Hence, as soon as ammonia comes off of glutamine, you've got ammonium ion, and it is exported into the tubular lumen largely as ammonium ion. So now you've got ammonium ion out here in the proximal convoluted tubule lumen. And in the process, you've taken a proton out from inside the cell, which drives, again, you know, this CO2, H2O towards production of bicarbonate, which is reabsorbed into the plasma. And this is new bicarb. If you acidify ammonia to produce ammonium ion, shove that out this way, you're going to end up with new bicarbonate going out this way. So that, is that new bicarb? The answer kind of is. It's a semantic question. So ammonium ion secretion is accompanied by new bicarb generation. Is the distal nephron really needed? And this is where things kind of get confusing and it usually is glossed over in physiology courses. And the short answer is yes, but for a convoluted reason. The convoluted reason is that if you take the ammonium ion from the proximal convoluted tubule and instead of putting it into the urine, you reabsorb it into the blood, it will travel to the liver, get converted to urea, 
an acid, which will then take those two bicarbonates that you generated in the proximal tubule, turn them back into CO2 and water, and you just have nothing but a cyclic reaction. So unless you take this ammonium ion and find it, help have it find its way into the urine, you've done nothing. Now, the weird thing about the kidney is that the ammonium ion, you think that's easy, because the ammonium ion goes out in the proximal tubule lumen. Hence, all it's got to do is sweep downstream through that sewer pipe and go out into the urine, but that's not how the kidney works. Here's what goes on. I already said this. What really goes on is the ammonia, or ammonium ion, more correctly speaking, that's produced here travels to the loop of Henle where it's reabsorbed. Why on earth would you want to reabsorb that stuff? It gets reabsorbed by the loop of Henle. Um, the dominant, so here's a loop of Henle, thick ascending limb cell. Ammonium ion reaching the luminal fluid of the thick ascending limb substitutes nicely for one of the, for, for potassium on the uh, co-transporter here, the, the sodium um, uh, potassium two chloride co-transporter. You can reabsorb this stuff through the cell. And of course, as you know, um, thick ascending limb has a potassium conductance that when, when activated, this is the ROMK potassium channel, when activated, um, will put positive charge out here and you end up with a positive charge driving um, the electrochemical gradient for ammonia and several other cations to be reabsorbed by the uh, paracellular pathway. This is a, a long way of just saying thick ascending limb has transport pathways that efficiently reabsorb ammonium ion. Uh, what I just showed you isn't the only game in town. Here's, uh, if you want to read, you know, a nice, you know, review uh, that shows all this stuff in more detail. Um, uh, you see several transporters in the thick ascending limb that are capable, uh, where largely potassium is substitutes for ammonium ion. And this is a part and parcel of what happens. Now, so what we've done so far, glutamine to ammonium ion, stuck it out in the lumen, sent it to the thick ascending limb, now it gets reabsorbed to a place where we seemingly don't necessarily want it. And now you're out here, though, in the renal medulla. And in the renal medulla, of course, you've got countercurrent exchange. Hence, um, you'll end up with a corticomedullary gradient of ammonia and ammonium ion out here in the, um, in the interstitium of the medulla of the kidney. Um, again, why you want that, uh, I guess it's a philosophical question over... Um, gin and tonic, but, but this is how it works. And then the, the next step, if you really want things to go well, if at this point all you did was take this ammonium ion, which is now out there in interstitium, being carried away potentially by vasorectoplasma, and you send it back to the liver, you've done nothing. The liver will make it, turn it into protons, you'll wreck into the bicarb you generated in the proximal tubule, it's a cyclic done nothing. However, if somehow you can get this ammonia to cross from the blood side into the collecting duct lumen, you'll have accomplished your task because that's where the diffusion trapping occurs. But mind you, as we've already said, that this stuff out here in the medullary interstitium is largely ammonium ion. 
Hence, um, it's not going to be a highly diffusible substance to go across uh, you know, lipid membranes. So there have to be transport pathways and weird things going on to enable this process. So here's some numbers from micropuncture. Uh, here's, uh, you know, 1987. Actually, this is a mishmash. I almost apologize for this table. I kind of threw it together. Um, the, the, um, so here's human plasma. These are numbers, you know, taken off of normal values for, for laboratory tests. In human plasma, at a pH of 7.4, uh, and I've got everything in millimolar here, um, this is the concentration of ammonia, obviously very low in a millimolar scale. Uh, ammonium ion um, is, you know, measurable on a millimolar scale. Um, in the medullary interstitium, meaning vasorectoplasma, which is how you sample med medullary interstitium, um, you'll see that the ammonia concentration actually, although it's still just 0.13, is a heck of a lot higher than it is in plasma. This isn't a rat now. Can't micropuncture people. Um, and corresponding ammonium ion concentration is up to 6.1. So now we're in vasorectoplasma or medullary interstitium equivalently. If you go out into the collecting duct lumen, um, ammonium, now you see the pH dropping, which means that you're going to have more of this relative to this. Ammonium ion is going to be present uh, in a ratio that's much larger than uh, a ratio to ammonia that is much larger than it is here in plasma. Or, and obviously, this can go down to five, so it can be even bigger. And, and, and the real key here is to make this stuff get out from the interstitium into the collecting duct lumen, as I mentioned. Um, actual micropuncture data from rats. Uh, again, the same sort of, you know, showing the distance along the, 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 the tubule. Um, here's ammonium concentration in millimolar, ammonium ion. And um, in proximal tubule, um, around a millimolar, by the time you get to urine, you've got 100 millimolar, but the mass flow rate of the stuff's about the same. So how we went from here to here is what's in question. So how is ammonium ion from the medullary interstitium secreted into collecting duct urine? And the answer is this is this buzzword of diffusion trapping that you've heard about so frequently. And uh, here's some numbers. Here's the cartoon that more or less kind of attempts to illustrate that. And uh, these are just equilibrium calculations with some numbers that are typical of micropuncture data. We're out here in the medullary interstitium where we've measured a pH of 7, measured um, an ammonium ion concentration of 2.4 millimolar. The corresponding ammonia concentration because of this equilibrium at a pH of 7 uh, is about 0 0.015 millimolar. Right across the collecting duct epithelium in the lumen, the ammonia concentration is the same meaning that things equilibrate very well from interstitium to tubular lumen for ammonia. However, ammonium, because of, uh, uh, is, is gone from 2.4 up two orders of magnitude to 246. This is, um, this is a minimal osmolar presence of ammonium ion. This is a substantial osmolar presence of ammonium ion in urine in an acidifying mammal. The reason that this can happen, of course, is because here you got a pH of 7, here you got a pH of 5, and you've splayed the ratio of ammonium ion to ammonia, and hence what you're doing is 
somehow moving ammonia from here to here, pumping out a proton to acidify this thing, which um, quantitatively um, traps the, the, the proton as ammonium ion. And of course, the key to having this reaction move this way is simply that the reactants or the products are removed by passing them out into the urine. So this is how the system really, really actually really works. Um, one, there are a number of key transporters involved in this process, obviously, proton ATPases and anion exchangers here for bicarbonate. But um, one of the ones that's gotten a lot of attention recently um, uh, is the ammonia gas channel, or the, um, that is, is, is what this red dot is meant to show on both sides, is that there is actually a, a channel that, uh, quote unquote, I don't know if it's an appropriate term or not, but it's called a gas channel. Um, and uh, uh, for, for ammonia to move, and it's um, been found to be basically RH proteins. So in summary, sub-summary, due to luminal acidification, high ammonium ion can be excreted without a significant osmolar presence of ammonium ion in the medullary interstitium because of this diffusion trapping. You can go from 2 millimolar to 200 millimolar by flipping this thing across the collecting duct. Um, uh, and trapping it because of the, the acidification. And that ratio, and, and, and the other thing to understand if you're really trying to grasp this or want to think about it in a quiet room, is that the difference in ammonia, ammonium ion between collecting duct lumen and medullary interstitium will increase by an order of magnitude for every lowering of pH by one unit in the collecting duct lumen. That's how the equilibrium works. The other key to this is that to trapping ammonium ion to excrete it into the urine is that the collecting duct permeability to ammonium ion is low, which it is. It's extremely low. Here's the measured ammonia permeability at various locations from um, uh, corticomedullary junction to papillary tip in the collecting duct. And um, you may probably not used to looking at these numbers times 10 to the minus 5 centimeters per second. Um, I grew up eating these numbers. And, and let me tell you that these are, you know, these are big numbers. Uh, it's at least as diffusible as moving a, 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 you know, sodium across a capillary. And again, this is due pro to the expression of these RH proteins. So here's how old this information is. Um, structural channels uh, in bacteria with similarity uh, to, to our red blood cell RH factor protein sort of clued people in that this was probably what's going on. And then RH proteins were, um, uh, you know, of course, cloned and, 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 and their expression, uh, isoforms and expression analyzed uh, in the kidney. And this is basically the cartoon version. This is sort of the more than you want to know um, review that actually is fairly contemporary from 2014. And it shows the expression of transporters. And now we're looking here. Uh, this is a type A acid, you know, transporting intercalated cell in, in, in the collecting duct. And you see the, um, the expression over here uh, on the interstitial side of RH proteins, RHBG isoform and CG isoform. Um, of course, the anion exchanger so that bicarbonate can get out where you want it to go into the blood. Um, and then there's an RHCG expression, again, in the, um, just, just as over here uh, uh, on the basolateral side, in the, uh, in the apical side facing the urine. So bottom line is you've got two different isoforms being expressed. 
one of which is on both sides and, 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 uh, um, and, and another of which is uh, present only on the, uh, the basolateral side of the collecting duct. So uh, how important are these things? Obviously, the first thing you do is try to you know, knock them down or knock them out or, or whatever. Um, and that has been done and played with uh, and it's an ongoing process where people are trying to generate um, some, um, uh, you know, some, some, some inducible forms of these knockouts. Uh, but, but the short version of the total knockouts is that RHCG, which is located both basolateral and luminin, luminal in the collecting duct, if you knock it out, you get an animal with a metabolic acidosis and, and happily, uh, as predicted, um, reduced ability to excrete ammonium ion and uh, reduced ammonium ion apparent permeability of the collecting duct. And uh, obviously, if you stress these animals with an acid load, they're going to have problems. RHBG, which is present on the basolateral side only, hence you've, already, you've got on the basolateral side, you've always got the CG. So if you knock out the BG version, uh, you get a fairly mild phenotype, as you might expect. And, um, and uh, you um, only see effects in these animals if you stress them with an acid load. So RH proteins. Um, the story, I'm a, close to the end here, happily. Feel free to applaud. Um, the, the, um, the story is very incomplete. We've been talking about transport mechanisms in proximal tubule and intercalated cell of the collecting duct. The story is very incomplete um, if you don't also give a nod to what's going on in the principal cell. The principal cell, if you've ever seen the lumen of a collecting duct or a picture of it um, from a scanning EM, it's really quite beautiful there. These um, cobblestone appearances of the two cell types side by side in the collecting duct. So as the principal cell, which transports sodium using, using ENAC, and basolateral sodium potassium ATPase, as this goes on, um, as positive charge moves into the cell and then into the blood, um, you make a lumen negative, um, uh, a lumen, you, you increase the lumen negativity within the collecting duct. And obviously right next door, the intercalated cell, which is what we've been talking about for the most part, is also affected by this lumen negativity and will help you move um, cations, such as protons, um, and, uh, and ammonium ion and thermodynamically favor enhancement of, um, of, of this process. So you get uh, a kick to acidification of the urine courtesy of transporting salt, which you know, you've been taught since medical school that this whole thing um, that looks a lot like um, uh, transporting sodium in exchange for potassium and, and protons and getting that's how you get your metabolic alkalosis and all such things. Um, a totally different lecture is to go over the role of the principal cell and the kinds of things that you get when you start to knock out its transporters. Uh, if you upregulate up that sodium reabsorption, you improve acidification. And, um, and depending upon the details, you get all these different syndromes. Um, if you knock down sodium reabsorption um, uh, in various ways, um, you get a whole different constellation of things that tend to be associated not with hypokalemia and alkalosis, but hyperkalemia and metabolic acidosis. And, um, and so really the principal cell is an intimate part of all this, but that's somewhat of a different lecture. Finally, glutamine, just to mention in passing as we end, is that um, 
glutamine and its regulation is, 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 is enormously uh, controlled within the kidney. Glutamine is, gives you the ammonium ion that you're going to send down to the distal nephron. Glutamine, uh, if in a normal kidney with you know, acid-base balance going on uh, and not particularly stressed with large acid loads, the kidney will extract 3 to 7% of glutamine that's coming in through the renal artery uh, on its way to the renal vein. In chronic acidosis, it extracts almost everything. So it uses the glutamine that's present in plasma. But of course, also it upregulates its own synthetic machinery for producing glutamine, and um, uh, you know this is an enormous topic once again, um, which frankly I've tried to read about and, and uh, kind of been put off by the complexity of it. Uh, but the synthesis, the glutamine synthesis, is highly regulated. Uh, it's not only the glutamine synthase machinery that gets uh, upregulated, but also uh, sodium hydrogen exchanger to get those protons out into the lumen uh, gets upregulated. Basal lateral uh, anion cotransport gets upregulated, and the whole proximal convoluted tubule can, undergoes a hypertrophy under states of chronic acidosis. So, you know, this is, I, I guess, the thing to say is that. Um, Excretion of large proton loads involves an orchestra uh, that is both proximal and distal in the kidney. And um, thank you for putting up with that. Great discussion of renal physiology. A lot of attention now is being paid to chloride. Um, I was hoping nobody would ask. Um, I, I've always been befuddled by chloride because, in general, uh, when you you know when you look in a clinical situation, it always just moves reciprocally to bicarbonate, and the orchestration of things that go on, and of course you're always in osmolar equilibrium, and you always have have to have uh, um, electrochemical equilibrium as well. Uh, so charge, you know, balance in plasma and elsewhere. And exactly how that all plays out within the kidney is frankly befuddling to me. So I guess the short answer is I don't know. And uh, I'd be happy to hear about any insights. Um, uh, of course, it is carried through the literature that if you want to reverse a metabolic alkalosis, um, you need to supply chloride-containing things as opposed to uh, um, sodium plus other anions. And, um, you know, the reasons for that, I've heard a lot of, you know, hand-waving explanations that we feed medical students and, and fellows, but I can't say that I've, I've ever managed to get my arms around exactly how that balance goes on in the kidney. If you've got insights or thoughts, I'd, be, I'd love to hear about them or good articles that are... Yeah, yeah. No, um, I, I don't know, and I've been, uh, uh, any time I've tried to read about that, I've never been satisfied, um, you know. But I'm getting used to that at my age, yeah. In terms of a strong ion difference, like how do you, do you guys ever use that in the, on the nephrology side? Or is there, what, what do you mean ion difference um, in particular? So yeah. a way to, uh, that a lot of ICU doctors have um, assessed the acid-base status of individuals to calculate the strong ion difference. And, um, it's basically a relationship between protons and electrons assessing. This, I think that this gets tied into this concept of, um, of, of, 
of uh, bicarb deficits and, and, and such things. Um, uh, I, 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 frankly, I've, I've never gotten my arms completely around using that, um, although I realize it's been around, you know, and, and touted since I was a medical student. Once I eventually got around to, you know, I got my, my arms around acid-based physiology a little bit when I finally had to teach a board course uh, as a nephrology attending, and, you know, and as an assistant professor. And um, uh, in general, I think they're just methods of looking at the same thing. Uh, I'm not exactly understanding the, you know, what you mean. The, the bottom line is, is, is that acids come in weak versions where the protons don't like to dissociate in strong versions like hydrochloric acid and, and you know, uh, uh, phosphoric acid, which has, you know, obviously three protons in play and um, and, and, uh, and sulfuric acids and, and, and other things. And really the question of, of just how how they play is largely tied in uh, to how well they dissociate in solution. So I guess I'm not understanding other than um, uh, uh, you, you do have to make some sense of the equilibrium of the acid you're talking about. Um, I, I don't know how, how else to answer it. And I still don't understand why, um, you know, lactate gives you less than, you know, one in your, um, your anion gap. I've heard a lot of hand-waving explanations about that too, and I've just read a New England Journal article review that basically re, re, you know, recapitulated all that. And I still don't understand exactly why that's true. It's supposed to be a pretty strong acid. Um, so there's still a lot of things about this I don't understand. I'll tell you to confess, there's one other thing about this that I really don't understand well, which is this business of having a, mo a potentially bicarbonate generated in the proximal convoluted tubule, new bicarbonate, right? Um, hypothetically, if you got ammonium ion past the thick ascending limb transporters and you sent it into the urine, done deal. You're generating new bicarbonate in the proximal convoluted tubule, right? And I don't know whether that's a point of regulation in the kidney. I mean, how do you know whether the ammonium ion that's in the collecting duct lumen is actually there because it arrived from upstream segments through the lumen, or whether it's gone through this diffusion trapping mechanism. The, all the physiology you would care to read, micropuncture experiments and everything else, have long since concluded that, you know, in a rat on a table, you know, this really goes on. Um, what I, and I suppose one reason that, that the game might be played that way is that, um, is that the fine regulation, which almost never occurs for anything in the proximal nephron, Right, you don't want to try to balance your protons in the proximal nephron where there's huge fluxes of everything. You just reabsorb the stuff, and then you have the choice of how much to transport back in to achieve your final acidification. Maybe that's the reason that the game is played that way on an evolutionary basis. I don't know, but hypothetically, if some physiological state you could downregulate the transporters in the thick ascending limb, or whether maybe furosemide blocking that transporter for reabsorption you know, would whoosh a little more of that stuff downstream. Now you've got the capacity to generate a metabolic alkalosis, right, through basically, um, um, uh, you know, a, a moving ammonium ion and generating new bicarbonate in the proximal convoluted tubule. How much is that what goes on as opposed to the other things we think about, which is the delivering of more salt to the principal cell, you know, the balance of these two pathways? I, I you know, have not been able to get my hand, arms around that. And, uh, and have not found a review that really addresses it. I don't even know if it each actually occurs to any significant degree. So feel free to teach me. I, 
I still don't understand this stuff.